Blog Talk Radio. Joining us on Three Women, Three Ways, we're the show that tackles some of the uh, um, less popular uh, topics and uh, topics having to do with gender violence and uh, women's issues and uh, everything from misogyny to good books to read. And uh, we have with us today a very important guest uh, who is just now back from the Middle East, and uh, she is just a, a terrific resource for us. Layla Welkin, Dr. Layla Welkin. Hi. Hi, welcome to Hi. our show. And uh, Layla, is uh, it's all right if I call you Layla? Absolutely. Okay. Um, she's a clinical cross-cultural psychologist, which is a term that's new to me. Um, she was born in Turkey, educated in the U.S., and worked for 25 years here right in the Pacific Northwest where I'm located. And then she founded the Pomegranate Connection Program in Ankara, Turkey, in 2008. She's partnered with organizations in the United States, UK, Turkey, and they're addressing gender-based violence. And uh, this is something that we only get little snatches of here and there in the news. And I don't know whether I'm with everybody else or not, um, uh, Layla, but I think that, oh, gosh, it must be terrible over there. It must just be terrible as far as gender violence. Um, am I right in my assumption? Well, to be honest, of course, there are real problems with gender-based violence there. There are real problems with gender-based violence, as all of us will appreciate everywhere. I think the newspapers are talking about it. Uh, I just looked at today's paper and saw something about a rape trial in Montana um, that has had a sentence just come down. We've been listening to high-profile cases related to the NFL recently. Gender-based violence is uh, pretty common in the world, as far as I can tell. So um, there's nothing unique about the fact that there's gender-based violence in the Middle East as well. But you don't hear of of women being stoned and, um, you know, especially with rape issues um, here in the United States, but I guess it's more uh, subtle. It's more subtle. We still like to blame victims, don't we? We do, and um, it is true. Okay, I guess one of the things that I do want to say is that there are real cultural differences, and that's the thing, um, you know, the cross-cultural psychology piece that's in my title is because I have focused a lot on the cultural issues related to um, psychology. And uh, psychology is really just the science of behavior and, and how we think and how we believe in addition to how we behave. So, um, of course, culture is really tied up with all those things. So there are surely cultural differences. But one of the things that worries me is the way that I feel like we use gender violence as a way of um, whipping up, honestly, political and ideological issues in relation to people who we think are really different than us. But I I feel strongly we're more similar to each other than we are different. And the differences are important, but we overemphasize the differences because they're kind of sensational. They look so exciting. But they're overplayed, is my opinion. Well, I think doesn't, you know, our popular culture uh, seems to... um form our opinions depending on what, what's popular at the time. Um, sure. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of um, certain religions might have a very grim view of women, um, and, and we don't really say anything about it. But if you go to a corporation that has a dim view of women, then we're all behind, you know, nailing them to the wall. Um, right. So it seems to me that our, in our culture, we tend to pick and choose. We're, we don't seem to be consistent in our feelings about gender violence. Sure. And I think what's really important to emphasize is um, we at this point in the United States and Europe are in the midst of a really major conflict with uh, Islam, 
cultures related to the religion of Islam, Muslim people. And so we're in the middle of what's a really strongly conflict-related mentality that polarizes stereotypes and gives us, I think, frankly, emotional material so that we can make those people seem as different and as bad as possible so we feel better about the fact that we've got a war going on with them. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Join us in our conversation. I'm learning a lot already. Our phone number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. And uh, join us in our conversation. Um, Leila, what's your opinion? You've spent a lot of time in Turkey and Syria. Um, Are those countries particularly... Uh, hard on women? Uh, are they particularly violent toward women? Would you say they're about the same as the U.S.? What? Give us your opinion on that. Okay. Um, you know, all of what I said just now about our similarities is true. And then at the same time, I think we also have to acknowledge that we are significantly different in a bunch of ways, too, um, in especially in relation to women's rights Human rights issues are quite different in the Middle East. Um, And that has a lot to do with the roles, the gender roles that men and women are expected to hold um, in the context of the Middle East. And it also has to do with some differences in how people see themselves in relation to their society. The relationship between individual and society is significantly different in those cultural frames, as is the difference, as as people see it, of gender roles. So those things are different in, in some important ways. And, I mean, we can talk about those in more depth, but those are key places of difference. Okay. Um, so let's get to the nitty-gritty. Um, is mm-hmm. it religion? Is it culture? Is it um, habit? Why so mm-hmm. hard on women um, in the mm-hmm. Middle East? Okay. I would say it is not religion per se, because I think if we look, for instance, at certain fundamentalist and quite rigid sects in Christianity, Judaism, even um, Hindus, and uh, I don't know, I haven't run across this particular piece in Buddhism, but I'm not sure that it's definitely not there. If we look at the major religions in the world, we're going to find groups that have a range of different views about women. So uh, it isn't the religion, in this case, Islam per se, that is hard on women. You'll find very liberal, very feminist Muslims in the world. But we do find groups that use gender and use power relations between groups of people as a really key piece of their cultural frame of how they keep people in their place. And um, I'd say it's more about culture in that sense and politics, frankly. I think right now Islam is heavily politicized for reasons that are much more political and ideological and about power than they are about anything religious at all. And I think we need to be paying more attention to that and less attention to these religious identities. Mm. Good good point. Very good point, I think. Um, I learned something interesting the other day. Did you know that Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson had the United States fighting a war against um, uh, Islamist extremists? I just read that Really? Yesterday. I didn't know. No, yeah, I didn't know. apparently the, the, uh, at that time they called it the Barbary Coast, um, mm-hmm. and, and uh, there were uh, pirates, and they... Um, they were Islamist extremists, and they demanded mm-hmm. um, uh, ransom. And right. the United States gave over a million dollars in ransom for um, citizens that were captured by the Barbary pirates. And um, yep. then uh, when Thomas Jefferson became president, he said, no more, and we actually fought a little war against them. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't surprise me at all. And then if you go back even further, you're going to find the Crusades, which was a, you know, a long period, hundreds of years of open and direct conflict between Europeans and people, you know, Muslim peoples in the Middle East. You know, the fight was over who was going to be in charge in the Middle East. So we have 
literally hundreds of years of, of history of conflict between people who identify as Muslim and people who identify as Christian. But if, if you ask me, I see all of that as much more motivated by uh, desire for power, resources, you know, money, treasure, and, and political power than I see it as per se related to religion. And I think that's what we have to look at when we look at gender violence as well. It's usually an issue of structure of society where women or somebody else who is more vulnerable is being exploited or abused by someone with more power. Women are a convenient group to exploit. But um, it's it, it happens in every part of the world, unfortunately, so far as I've been able to tell. Yeah, I think you're tr- that's true. And I think, you know, historically, um, you know, I, it, it seems to me that we always, cultures always go for the, the for lack of a better term, the weakest link. Um, children. The vulnerable people. Vulnerable, that's it. To harm, yeah. I mean, there's nothing weak about vulnerability necessarily, but it does make people open to exploitation. I think children is a great example. Children don't have certain kinds of power in a social situation. They don't make the rules. Anybody who doesn't have the capacity to make the rules of the game is vulnerable to the people who do. And we use window dressing around religion, we use it around politics, we use it around all kinds of things, gender, etc. But really the issue is who's making the rules. And if you look at most of the world, women are not making the rules. So that's one of the reasons why women and children are so vulnerable. You put in a war situation like we've got going on right now in the Middle East, and women, children, and other vulnerable groups, that means, you know, ethnic, religious, and other kinds of minorities, disabled people, gay people, all those people are particularly vulnerable because they don't make the rules. The world isn't set up for their convenience. It's set up Mm -hmm. for men's convenience. Um, And not all men, by the way. The the men at the top of the pyramid's convenience. Yes. Yes. And do you think that the religion of those rule makers is incidental to their... um, To some extent, I think it is. I I mean, of course, it changes details or ways. You know, for instance, let's take veiling. Veiling is something that's a really key cultural piece in Islam. You'll see a wide range of veiling behaviors in the Islamic world. You know, everything from people who cover entirely like the burqa to people who just put a light scarf over the top of their head um, and, you know, aren't even that concerned about showing a little bit of hair to people who don't wear any veiling at all. Those are all, you know, variations on a veiling theme, and there are many, many in there. But that's something that currently is an issue in Islam. It was actually, if you go back far enough in the history, veiling was something that Muslims, early Muslims, the first Muslims, picked up from Christians and Jews in their same geographical area down there in the Arab Peninsula. Christians and Jews did veiling before Muslims picked it up from them. And it relates to the history of slavery and some other things. So without getting too deeply into that, while we associate this issue of veiling a lot right now with Islam, that's a historical issue. Right now it's in the you know forefront in an Islamic cultural conversation. But it wasn't always so. And, it, and if you look, you'll find pieces of veiling in both Judaism and Christianity as well. Women going into Catholic churches, covering their heads. We've all, many of us seen that. Um, many Orthodox Jewish women wear wigs. They don't show their hair. Um, that's a different type of veiling. These are, these are cultural habits that change over time within the context of a religion. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, my opinion, um, you know, for what it's worth, is that mm-hmm. any time we make a rule, we can justify mm-hmm. it by whatever religion we have. Absolutely, and religion is a handy shorthand because usually there are people in a religious hierarchy who have a tremendous amount of power. When I was working in um, the refugee camps 
in uh, right along the border with Syria and Turkey. One of the things that the women there, because I was working with women in the refugee camp uh, there, the women there would say to me, they would complain that um, whenever they started to make any kind of social progress in the camp and in terms of gaining a voice or being able to be involved in any kind of decision-making, the um, people who were sort of the religious leaders, so to speak, within the camp, who were therefore also then the community leaders with the camp, all men, by the way, they would come back and say, it's haram or forbidden under Islam for women to do X, Y, Z, whatever the behavior was. And at one point, for instance, we were encouraging the women to go advocate with the camp authorities who were, you know, administering the camp around certain specific issues. And we wanted to help the women go speak to the authorities at the camp so that their own point of view about these issues, it, it had to do with cooking and some other kinds of things that were important to them, cleanliness, cleanliness and so forth. Well, the, the um, women told us that when they began to go talk to the uh, administration, camp administration, the, those religious leaders, they called themselves, um, went to the camp administrators and told them that in our Islam, it's haram for women to go to the administration building. <laughs> so they made the roll up on the spot and checkmate. The fact that they didn't want them in there, <laughs> and you know, I, and nobody was laughing about it. Is what I'm trying. I mean, you and I can laugh, yes. but it wasn't yes. a laughing matter in that situation. If you see what I mean, you know, uh, sure. and these women yes. were feeling really stymied by this. So that, to my mind, is a form of gender violence. It's less extreme and headline-grabbing than stonings, which, mm -hmm. honestly, I didn't see a lot of stonings. They happen, but they're a rarity. You know, they're, they're an uncommon but occurring event. And certainly within the context of the war, that kind of terrible thing will increase because people's barbarian behavior increases in wars, but it just happens sure. that way. But what what I was much more concerned about was those what I'd call sort of more subtle or structural gender-based violence. Like, well, you know, women are told it's against our religion for you to talk to the administration. Huh? That's violence too. Yeah. It keeps them from well, and it's power. so it's so final. It's like checkmate. You're done. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. You know. And of course, the women. Um, you know, some of the women will, in fact, say, "Okay, I give up." But, uh, you know, there are, thank goodness, a set of women who go, uh-uh, I don't buy that, willing to just not go. And thank goodness, in that particular instance that I'm telling you about, in that particular camp, the administrators said, we're sorry, but we don't uh, happen to agree with that, and, um, um, you know, we're sorry that you feel that way about it, but we do want to continue to talk to women um, as administrators at this camp. We feel like we need to know their point of view, too. So thank God, in that case, now these are both groups of Sunni Muslim men we're speaking with each other, and one group was saying, this is haram, you can't do it, it's forbidden, a sin, so to speak. And the other group was saying, no, not according to us, and we're going to keep on encouraging it. So there's an example right there of how religion is being used, um, in my view, a bit as an excuse. Sure, sure, I, I can see that. Um, it's kind of like a... Um, it's it's almost an unfair thing because all religions are based on writings of one form or another, and mm -hmm. those writings are open to interpretation. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. You know, it it just depends on the individual's interpretation, and if he or she right. can get a lot of people on their side and sharing their interpretation, right. boom. You Precisely. know. So in other words, it's just Precisely. a handy excuse to get what I want. It's a handy way Absolutely. to. To say, okay, I want this, and so therefore I'm going to call on, you know, the Almighty's word uh, to support what yeah. I think. Um, right, and God is on my uh, side. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, exactly. And there's nothing peculiar about that in Islam. Uh, you know, if any of us search our hearts and think about history, even perhaps our own lives, we've all seen Christians do that, we've all seen Jews do that, we've seen people do that. This is a human behavior. So I think we need to stop being so mesmerized by the, you know, religious uh, window dressing on these behaviors. It's, it's exploitative power. It's a way that people hold power over each other, and that's really the core of what we're concerned about with gender-based violence. It's, yes. That's really the issue. 
and and so I was trying in the work that I did in Turkey and also with Syrian refugees to get people thinking more about the issues of gender and human rights and you know the ways that they were hurt and benefited from the systems that were set up around power. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how successful were you? Well, uh, let's be honest. It's a war. There's terrible things going on, very terrible things going on. And the overall picture is very grim. Very, very uh, terrible things are being done to people every day. And as we can see from the newspapers and the news in general, the situation is just getting worse. So in that sense, it was quite discouraging. You know, in the macro frame of things, things are just getting worse. And I can't claim to any, you know, real success when it comes to that level. But I think in my line of work um, as a psychologist, I have to also believe that the specific uh, interactions that I have with particular people, um, individuals or small groups, where we make a real connection with each other and perhaps one person or just a few people feel encouraged or feel heard or feel valued and respected, that matters too. And and I feel like I had some success on that front. But in terms of changing the big picture, no. I, I don't think that's just not possible under the current circumstances. Well, even under the best of circumstances, doesn't it? I mean, it takes a generation or two to make any change. Really? I mean, unless well, you're talking some sort of legislation. awfully but... quick. Yeah, I mean, well, legislation, the, the thing also to be aware of in Turkey is, is that Turkey actually has a really good set of laws. Their laws are very progressive, very European, because Europe, um, they're part of a lot of European conventions. In fact, one of the most progressive sets of laws in the world right now in relation to gender-based violence is called the Istanbul Convention because it was signed in Turkey, in Istanbul. And, you know, a lot of European countries have signed on to it. It's, it's an excellent set of laws. But the question is not just do you have the law, it's also is that law implemented. And in yeah. Turkey, the big problem is not with the law itself but with the implementation of the law, which has much more to do with custom and culture. And again, I don't think that's strictly about Islam. I think it's much more about tradition. If you go back 30 years in this country, though, you saw a lot of the same things. I mean, we still have them now, but I mean, much more commonly, how many people were saying this is a private affair? It's not anybody's business if he beats his wife, you know? Mm-hmm. And the fact and that we NFL, that for, for uh, we certainly did. That. Absolutely. And, and NFL players are being called out on behaviors now that by no means would they have been called out on just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is this is a worldwide, this is a global change in culture that we're seeing. And not every place on the globe is operating from the same place and, you know, coming at it from the same angle. But I think we're we're witnessing a global change in people's consciousness about what human rights ought to be and what women's place within the realm of human rights ought to be. And I think that's exciting. And I feel like I've been a part of that. Oh, wonderful. Now, how many years did you spend in the Middle East? I lived there for six years, just over the last six years. I just got back um, in July. But I was born in Turkey, so I have a lifelong relationship with Turkey. Um, but this piece of working on gender violence has just been that the last six years. Yeah, just the last six years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the majority a, of my a, life I lived here. Six years is a long time, and I won't lie. It was challenging. It was really hard work. But, yeah. like I say, I felt like I was part of a global movement um, mm-hmm. that I truly believe, because I've been in this field for a very long time. I, I first began working with, you know, I was helping to lead groups for sexual abuse survivors back in 1980 two, and three. So I've been in this field for a while, and um, I've seen enormous change in my lifetime. So if I look at that large frame, I can feel optimistic. I have to admit, when I just look at the daily news or focus in on stuff that's too close by, it is discouraging sometimes. Yeah. But look at what you have accomplished. 
Yeah. Gosh, so, yes. but and, you... and I feel great about um, pieces of what I've been able to do. And I'm one person. Think of how many hundreds and thousands of women around the globe are caring and paying attention and involving themselves in conversations about this that would have been inconceivable, you know, some time ago. This this is mm-hmm. this is tremendous. This is important. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely admire you for you know putting your your efforts and your education to work at you know kind of in the field, if you will. Um, that, well, thank that you. Amazing I'm just that kind of a person. <laughs> I'm not the kind of person who's comfortable. Um, if I can't figure out what's happening in the real application, you know, I've also mm-hmm. been an academic and taught in universities um, along with doing, you know, clinical and, and um, programmatic work. But there is something very satisfying about the direct and specific application of these ideas. Um, you know, well, tell I us personally a little bit. the people that told from them. Yeah, tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about your organization that you created. What what is the the function of the organization, um, and you know, our, tell us a little bit about it. Well, the key, as far as I'm concerned, about creating, I mean, it's called the pomegranate connection, and that's because pomegranates are um, in the Middle East, and I think all of us can agree, there's a kind of a lovely feminine quality. It looks like a womb and a fruitful womb. It has that ancient um, symbology connected to it. It's a symbol of the woman and her rich uh, reproductive sexual identity. So I deliberately chose pomegranates, but it's a connection because it's a connection between women in my vision uh, from different parts of the world where we glory in the beauty of our female selves and what's reproductively rich about us, not just in our bodies, but in our imaginations. That's Mm -hmm. a huge piece of our power. So I was really interested in working with women to imagine and take a hold of their power in connection with each other. Because that's something that the Middle Eastern women in general are really good at. They know how to do solidarity, um, and they really see the power of relationships and solidarity with one another. Not that American women or European women can't and don't, but there's a special um, awareness of the power of relatedness in the Middle East that I deliberately went there to learn more about. Wonderful. I love your imagery. I I, I think that's uh, kind of an amazing image. Um, personally, can I ask you, why were you born in Turkey? Is that where your parents lived? or were... My parents are actually both um, from uh, a Euro-American kind of a background, and, and both of them grew up mostly in the Seattle area. So I got a lot of grounding here. But my father was a physician, and he was an adventurous sort of a guy. And um, my parents wanted to practice medicine in a place where medicine was very needed back in the 1950s. And so they went to Turkey to practice medicine in southeast Turkey, the town Gaziantep, which is actually (laughs) coincidentally the center now of a lot of the refugee activity that's going on with Syrians in Turkey. So I was born in the town that coincidentally I ended up going back to to do this work with refugees uh, a year and a half ago. So that's kind of amazing. My father was being a physician at a hospital that's still there. Oh, wow. That's I was neat. born during that time. Yeah. yeah. So there was a very cool personal connection piece that was happening there for me, too. Mm-hmm. Wow, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always curious about, you know, how people get where they're going, you know? Yeah. <laughs> how yeah. people end up where they end up, you know? Um, well, it's a I have a you know, and I wonder if it's a uh, if you even always do know, is it possible to know how how do these things happen? But you were about to tell a story. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say I have a friend, a dear friend, who um, actually was born in China. Her parents uh-huh. were German Jews, and they um, uh, tried to get out during World War II. And, of course, uh-huh. the United States didn't take everybody all at once. Sure. Um, and so some sure. of the, the refugees went to other countries, and her parents went to China. Yeah. And so yep. she was mm-hmm. born in China, and then as soon as the war was over, yep. they all immigrated to, you know, a Midwestern state. And I, yeah. it was always so funny because she was so obviously American. And yes. to say, when she'd say, well, I was born in China, it was it's always kind of a – anyway, it, it interests me yeah. <laughs> how people yeah. end up where they well, are, are. 
Yeah. Well, for me, it was more than a birthplace because we actually, we left Turkey that first time when I was three years old, but then we went back again and I went to school during middle school um, in Turkey again. So I kept up the language to some extent. I mean, I would forget it, but relearn it. And then I remained fascinated with the culture and, um, you know, continued to have friends and, and uh, people who were important to me in Turkey. So I, um, though I have no Turkish blood, actually, feel a strong identification with Turkishness, um, which is another reason why I sort of question how important blood really is. Ethnicity is something, again, that's uh, a category. I wonder sometimes what exactly we mean by that. But, yeah. I have a lifelong, very powerful connection for myself with Turkey, and I'm not ethnically Turkish. Yes. Um, that, that was just an aside. I was just curious. Please mm-hmm. join us for our conversation, mm-hmm. 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Well, Layla, I'm having a good time uh, just sitting here learning and absorbing from you. Um, what is it that you think is the biggest difference between women in the Middle East and women here in uh, in the United States? Well, I, I think it goes back to this issue of relatedness, and I, I just um, this is something that was so important that I was learning when I first went to Turkey. One of the first things I did was some research where I teamed with a couple of Turkish psychiatrists, and we ran five women's adult sexual abuse survivors groups, um, which were, uh, it, it took us two years to do it, and, and about 50 women were involved. Over It was a time-limited type group, and it was a model that I had used in this country for years. So I had developed the model here, and I wanted to work with Turkish psychiatrists and Turkish women to see how the model needed to be modified in order to work in that setting. And mm-hmm. so, um, and I figured I couldn't help but learn important things about folks there. So I did, and of course I was paying close attention to what differences I might find. Of course I found more similarities than differences. But one of the key things that I noticed was that women in that context, um, from that society in general, thought of themselves first and foremost in terms of who they were affiliated with or who they were connected with. In other mm-hmm. words, if I'm a person in, um, brought up in this culture, in this society, um, in a mainstream kind of a way, in general, if somebody says, uh, if, if I'm introducing myself as Layla Welkin from that frame of reference, I might say, I'm a tall woman, woman. my hair is uh, turning pretty white, but I have a kind of a blondish uh, complexion. I am um, a person who's gotten quite a bit of education, but I sure love to play and have fun. You know, I really highly value creativity and a sense of humor. Um, Okay, so you get the gist. Those are, Mm -hmm. are, that's an introduction of myself or or presentation of myself from one frame. Now I'm going to give you a frame as if I was introducing myself from that connected or relational frame. I'm Layla Welkin. I come from a family of uh, four siblings. My father, um, Jack Brown, was a physician. My mother was a writer and a housewife. We um, traveled back and forth between Turkey and the United States. uh, I went to several universities. I hold my Ph.D. from Union Institute and uh, University. Um, I'm a Quaker. are you beginning to get the, the feeling sure. of the difference there? Yes, I'm absolutely. talking about what groups and um, people and groups I'm affiliated with in the relational mm-hmm. frame. The other one was much more about stuff in my skin or in my individual personality. Mm-hmm. And this is a significant difference when it comes to how you think about your feelings and your relationships with other people, what you put first or what you tend to give priority or focus to really matters. And as you can imagine, when it comes to gender-based violence or family or sexual violence, when the wounding is in the place of relationships, because it is in all those situations, it always is, but if you frame those relationships as 
the key factor in who you are that has significant effects on how you experience the, the trauma or the effects of those experiences, the, the violence, the abuse. Am I making sense? No, well, not to me. Uh, I'm a lot. I mean, you're okay. making sense, but I'm not quite getting it. Um, okay. Give me an example. Give me an example of, okay. of the point you're trying to make. Okay. So a woman in a group in um, Turkey, I was sometimes surprised when women in the groups in uh, Ankara, the groups I conducted were all in Ankara, um, those women uh, would sometimes say, I... Uh, the people I tell about what goes on in my life are mostly my family, my sister, my mother, you know, a, a female relative is usually the person people have as their closest confidant. Um, and then, but they'd say, but I, I can't tell them about how I feel about this rape or this abuse because it would just be so hurtful to them to hear about the feelings that I'm having. So people would be afraid to share information about how bad they felt because of the damage that it might do to other family members. Now, you might hear something similar to that in this country. Oh, if I were to tell my family about this abuse that happened within our family, you know, they'd be devastated to hear that. I mean, we do hear that, but it's a matter of degree. Again, I wouldn't hear it as often, and it might not be as much of a focus. People in the groups that I conducted here more often would say, I don't know if I can handle this feeling. It might kill me. I don't know if I can, I, you know, I'd rather die than feel the way I'm feeling. That would be a common thing that I'd hear in this context in the, in the United States groups. In Turkey, it'd be much more frequently, this is a terrible thing, and I'm so afraid of how my family or other people will think or feel if I let them know about it. Does that make any mm. sense? Yes. Yes, it definitely so it's a, does. It's a focus. So, so I know in well I'm assuming in Turkey we don't have the same um things like in India with the honor killings but maybe I'm wrong. We do though. No, we do. We do. We do. Really? And that honor killing idea comes from and and in Syria too there are honor killings. Stigma in the Middle East and what you hear about in India uh, is very high and that's partly related to this relational way of thinking because a um person who is, uh, uh, well, frankly, females in this context are the holders of the honor of the sexual propriety and moral um, ripeness of their family. So as a female in my family, my family's honorableness is reflected by my moral behavior, especially with regard to sexuality. So I'm responsible for everybody. In turn, they're responsible for protecting me from dishonor. But one of the reasons why people get killed in these honor killings is is that the male members of the family feel that they've been injured if the woman was injured because they've been shown up as unable to protect her properly. So if I didn't oh, okay. protect her Okay, so it properly, has less to do with honor than pride. Well, the pride and honor are very tied up with each other. Um, and that, again, remember, pride, if you're construing pride strictly in terms of your own self personally, I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of a person, that's one kind of pride. But if you're construing pride in terms of I come from this kind of a family, we're these type of people, we do this and we do that and we behave in these ways, pride has extended itself, and that's more like honor. It's a social, there's a, there's a stronger social uh, piece to it. It matters more what other people do in addition to what you do. So this is tricky. This is a big burden. And women in our groups, for instance, would talk about, and just women in, in Turkish and Syrian society would frequently say to me um, how much of, well, on one hand, it can feel good that people care about you in that way. You know, people feel as if they're important to their family or their group in that way, but it can also be a tremendous burden because you're carrying so much of other people's need for, you know, morality or whatever it might be. It's, it's tricky. Do you think that that's a similar but in more diluted um, uh, way in the United States? I, I think that we we make the success of a relationship the woman's responsibility. Um, well, sure. I, 
and it's and, the same and, kind of thing that's going on. Yeah, when women, when 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 we say, but but she's but she's a prostitute. How could you? How could a prostitute be raped? Or look at the way she was dressed. She doesn't mm-hmm. deserve protection. Those are actually not that different than what they're saying with the owner question. You know, it's like, well, she behaved in a way that was asking for trouble. So she got trouble. It's her fault. But, again, it's, it's, it's just a question of, of, you know, what are the rules that everybody has to obey? But it goes right back, though, to the woman's got a whole list of rules she has to obey or she deserves whatever she gets. Yeah. And we do it. We do it. Yeah. Yeah, we do it too. I mean, I'm thinking of question it more. Yeah, I, 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 you know, the question, of course, with domestic violence is, well, why doesn't she leave? Well, you know, my response to that is she does eventually if she lives long enough. Um, But, uh, you know, maybe not according to your time frame. um, But there's Mm -hmm. also that whole thing of, you know, if this relationship is not successful, it must be something that I am doing. It must be some somehow or other I need right. to change in order for this to be successful. Right. And and I think a, right. a huge number of, of abused women um, have that yeah. in them, that somehow or other they can change and make it successful, that, that the success or failure of the relationship, regardless of the abuse, is somehow or other their um, success or failure. And, Which honestly um, is absolutely the way that people in general tend to think in a relational society. That's one of the ways where the female gender role in this society is more similar to the way that a relational culture would operate. Because everybody would feel as if their behavior had a lot to do with other people's behavior. You know, people will frequently say, don't do that or don't say that. You'll make me do X, Y, Z. We in this society have a much more self-control. I do what I do because because of what I want to do, you know, and you do what you do because of what you want to do. We see that separation much more starkly. But um, that's not the primary frame of reference in a relational society. People think that they are much more affected by each other's behavior. And if we're honest, we're very affected by other people's behavior too. It's all a matter of degree, isn't it? And where you put your focus. So I think gender-based violence is just one of the places that makes it clearer to us, all of us, how much relationships matter to all of us. Because it's not just women who don't leave. It's also men who frequently don't leave, even though they're very unhappy in a relationship. You know, that's just a, not a female thing. And it's not just women who get beat up in relationships. Men get abused, too. And men can stay attached to people who are abusive of them. It's part of the dynamic. So it's not really about maleness or femaleness. It's about power, and it's about a sense of whether you could take care of yourself. Just incidentally, one statistic that I think is pretty important is 80% of women in Turkey, this, these statistics might be a few years old, but in any case, they're, they're not radically different now. 80% of women in Turkey are supported by someone other than themselves, by a man, by their father, by their brother, by their husband, by someone else. So they don't have the economic ability. And by the way, part-time work and you know easy jobs for women to get are not such a easy thing in that context. Um, it's harder for women to take care of themselves independently. It's not expected. That's especially true in Syrian society, Syrian, um, Syrian uh, rural society or these, these countries where there just isn't that much economic opportunity. How is she going to take care of herself? How is she going to support herself? Well, and again, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people in our culture, it's the same situation, you know. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. These are not really radical differences. No, no. Uh, Well, except, you know, the, the, the laws and the expectations. Although there are religions that say no matter what, you are married to a person, you need to stay with that person. Um, yes, which is but Islam pretty... is not that. Yeah. Islam does huh. not have that. I mean, women in, I mean, of course, it varies from place to place and other kinds of factors, but divorce is possible within Islam and, and virtually all uh, sex. I mean, there may be sex that, that uh, forbid it, but generally speaking, there is divorce in Islam. Hmm. 
I don't hear about, about that very often. What does it require? Well, the question I mean, is who gets to declare it? I mean, men in traditional Sunni Islam can say, I divorce you three times and you're divorced. They're divorced. Still. Um, uh, in some places. Um, well, okay, then there's a distinction between civil law and religious law, and I'm just telling you about a, a religious uh, law procedure. In Turkey, while 98.9% of people are Muslim, um, the law does not allow divorce like that. No, the the civil law, the you know the the Turkish law mm-hmm. does not allow divorce like that. There's you have to go through you know full civil procedure in order to have a divorce. But um, but there's a difference, right? We've got the same thing here. You know, a Catholic may not be able to divorce according to Catholic rules, but that you know, in every state in the American Union, they have the right to divorce. Sure. Yeah. Huh. Um, so let's get back to the the, the differences. Um, one of the sure. things that we talked about when uh, we were off air is how yeah. the victim responses are similar. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Well, again, um, again, the place where I was most carefully looking at similarities and differences was in those research projects. The the um, the uh, research groups that I did. So that that's what I keep going back to when we talk about this. But um, what I saw when I was following a model that had been by and large developed with women, adult women survivors of sexual abuse in the United States and a variety of settings, um, I found uh, that there was a fairly predictable set of emotional expression. I mean, it's it's in a lot of the literature. There are certain fairly predictable stages that women tend to go through in the process of acknowledging, facing, grieving, and then moving on from traumatic experiences that they've had. And and in the literature, we have, you know, a fair amount of evidence that a lot of people from a lot of different frames of reference will go through similar sorts of processes, different ways, but their emotions are somewhat predictable. And we saw basically the same set, the same set of stages, the same frame of of, um, emotions among the women in that Turkish context. So the, the larger pattern was very similar. It was more in the details and where people focused or where um, certain specific types of behaviors that might vary a little bit, but not frame of how people felt or responded to trauma and trauma healing. Hmm. So the women feel responsible for their own victimization uh, in in many ways. Here as well as there. Yeah, that's pretty common here too. Uh Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Well, they tend to feel responsible. There's a lot of self-blame. There's a lot of fear of being stigmatized and excluded socially in both places. People feel different. They feel dirty. They feel um, as if they've been branded as a bad woman or, you know, like you were saying earlier, they search their own behavior for what it is that makes this happen to them as if, you know, it, it's entirely as a result of things they've done. That's true in both places. The self-blame in that context is amped up by the fact that you have a social world that will utterly agree with that self-blame. You know, the, the women are blamed very heavily in that context, even to a greater degree than here. In this society, over the last couple of decades, we've begun to do less victim-blaming. So we've begun to see this more as something where perpetrators have primary responsibility for their own behavior. And they're really not there yet in the Middle East to the same degree that we are. But we weren't there a few decades ago here, so I fully expect they will move in this direction too if we keep talking to each other, if we stay connected. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the United Nations is pushing towards more uh, equitable treatment of women. And, uh, you know, I mean, right. the, globally, uh, there is pressure yeah. to um, treat women Absolutely. and 
um, uh, children with more uh, equanimity than we have yep. seen in the past. So it's a question of yep. you know how how isolated can a culture remain um, in yes. this global yes. environment that we have. So yeah, yeah, right, um, right. Okay, so, mm-hmm. so we see similarities in women's uh, responses to uh, mm-hmm. gender violence. We see yep. similarities in um, the um, justification for gender violence. Yep. We yep. see similarities in um, entitlement, feelings of entitlement. Yes. Um, that, that yes. Uh, the rule, the 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 lawmakers or the the dominant group in society has the right to be dominant, mm-hmm. even in, up to the point yes. of violence over the non um yes. you know um uh deciders oh, the non leaders mm-hmm. um so yeah. there there is uh, a lot of similarities there are a lot of similarities right. which I wouldn't have seen I mean I just did, never saw it that way um yeah. but what about the amount of gender violence we know well, that in this I countries we know yeah. that in this country it's something like 25 to uh, 40% of women experience uh, violence from an intimate partner, um, and that yeah. includes rape, of a stranger rape. And, and, you know, so we yeah. have a fairly high incident here, incidence here. What about yeah. in the Middle East? Well, okay, when you get into the question of, of numbers of incidents, I think, again, I want to caution us because the thing that I was trying to talk about earlier was how we're actually looking at the structure of power and who gets to make the rules and who has opportunities to meet their needs and who feels protected and safe and who doesn't. And that's a structural question. It's not about the number of times somebody's punched or the uh, specific incidents of rape that uh, makes a society uh, have a, a place where gender-based violence happens or not. Of course those matter. But even more important to that, what I'm trying to say is it's the structure of how power is used and who gets to make the rules. So I think it's safe to say that in this society, we're making progress, reducing the number of incidents of rape and reducing the number of incidents of intimate partner violence in part by getting women more involved in the decision-making process having a larger social conversation about it, and calling out these practices as if they really aren't acceptable. So we've made some progress in that way. And that conversation is not yet happening to the same extent in a Turkish context or a Syrian context. They're in the midst of, well, in terms of Syria, they're in the midst of a terrible, bloody civil war where everything's just falling apart and everybody's being violated left, right, and center. And people in Turkey are going through a tremendous amount of ferment around politics and religion and um, gender issues that make the social conversation not very safe, not very safe for women and um, not very safe for vulnerable people, minority groups and other things too. So these, it's very high, yes. The problem is very significant over there. But I want us to get away, I'd like to see people get away from an over-focus on specific incidents of um, a beating or a rape and think more the way society is structured and the degree to which our relationships are based on a sense of equal dignity for all humans. Very idealistic. Admirable. Yep. But idealistic. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to know you after all this work. I just have to believe that it's possible to make progress, and you know, I, I I've watched progress get made, and it's partly because people have had this conversation differently. So I believe that there is change happening. But you're right, you know, it sounds pie in the sky. But if I hadn't seen things get better in my lifetime, then then you'd have more right to just say, well, wow, aren't you out of touch? But in fact, I'm not out of touch. I'm <laughs> now right I wasn't on the ground saying that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you aren't saying that. But people do. People do, you know, and, and lots of yeah. people would say, oh, you're so romantic. Oh, you're so romantic. idealistic. Well, that's the <laughs> term that gets used in Turkey a lot, romantic in the philosophical sense. Um, uh, okay. It's naivete. They're accusing you yeah. of naivete. And I've got to say, mm, you can call it naivete, but 
excuse me very much, I'm doing something. And yeah. I've seen people get better. So you can call it 90A if you like, but I like to call it paying attention to where I see the moving edge of change. Very good. Very good. So, okay, we've talked about the similarities. We've talked about some of the differences. Is there anything that we can do about it? Yes. Well, like what we're doing right now is excellent. We're talking about it. We're having a conversation. We're acting as if this is a social issue. We're getting informed. We're not pretending that this is a hopeless thing. One of the things that makes me the more more upset than anything else is when everybody goes, "Oh, what do you you know what do you expect? It's always been like this. It's always going to be like this." You know, men have always acted one way. Women have always acted another way. No, that's not true. And that myth that this is an eternal problem that will never be solved is part of how we stay passive and how we give ourselves a pass from working on it. So, you know, we need more people to get informed enough to be idealistic. Instead of thinking it's naivete, you know, maybe it's just the opposite. The idealists are the people who see the possibility of change and pursue it. It's a different thing. Very good. So just having the conversation, becoming informed about it, um, that's yep. that's what we need to do as And not thinking as, that as it's Americans. something that's happening to other people. Don't don't get all mesmerized by the media's attention on these exotic stonings and, you know, all the people who are raped in the Syrian civil war. I mean these are these are important things. Be aware of that. But don't make that don't let that make you think that this isn't happening in SeaTac, or, you know, don't let that make you think that this isn't a problem in your own neighborhoods, in your own families. The people who behave abusive are all of us, and we all are part of this issue. It's not someone else's issue. So that, I think, is is key. Yeah. Well, and too often, I think, we we tend to believe that until it happens to us, it's not our issue. Um, Right. Well, and and often we don't acknowledge what has happened to us. You know, hey, what happened to me? It wasn't so bad. You know, at least it's not a stoning. You know, that's the thing. It's like if I can find a really exotic, scary, terrible-sounding thing, then that makes it easier for me to forget that, you know, my neighbor may be beating his child, and maybe we have a social responsibility about that. There's a wonderful campaign going on in India right now, which is about ringing the bell where they're encouraging men when they hear uh, intimate partner violence, you know, violence in a family going on, for the man to just go ring the doorbell as a way of letting that person who's doing the beating know that someone is aware. (laughs) There's neighbors around. You're not alone. Somebody might be coming to your door. That's a beautiful little symbolic gesture as far as I'm concerned. Care about it. Pay attention. Don't act like it's not happening. If you see somebody being abused, let them know they're being watched. Don't say this is acceptable. Don't act as if it's nothing. And don't turn away as if it's not, you know, um, doesn't have anything to do with you, so therefore you shouldn't exactly. cry, you shouldn't meddle. Exactly. Um, you know, exactly. it doesn't, especially in this country, I mean, who doesn't have a cell phone and it only takes a second to dial 911 and, you know, I mm-hmm. I don't necessarily advocate, you know, getting in the middle of uh, any kind of violent activity, mm-hmm. but how mm-hmm. how long does it take mm-hmm. to dial 911, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. And I don't think in India they're necessarily encouraging people to ring the bell and stay there and confront the people. I think the, the campaign is when you hear intimate partner going uh, violence going on in a household, just go ring the doorbell and then you can walk away. But yeah. putting them on notice. They're not really alone. Somebody heard. Ah, very good. Well, gosh, this this hour has gone so quickly, and I have learned so much. I hope our listeners have too. And uh, it's been great getting to know you, Layla, and and good luck Thank with you. your work. You know, I always Thank end you. our I'm show. <laughs> I always end our show with a quote, and I found one today by Manitonquat. It is clear that the way to heal society of its violence and lack of love is to replace the pyramid of domination with the circle of equality and respect. I think that that's, um, you know, naive and and idealistic, but also very, very true. (laughs) I I don't uh, know if we need to have uh, so much... uh, 
negative uh, sense about idealism and naivete. Sometimes just no, say, I think it's a very, you know, we should strive toward the ideal. Thank you for joining <laughs> us, Layla. Thank you, listeners, for Thank joining you so us. Much. Remember, you can really uh, join us again next week, and we'll tackle another topic on uh, uh, women's issues and gender violence. Join us next week. <laughs>